Hi folks, welcome back into another episode of Flourish FM. We've got kind of a special episode for you today. We are chatting with Dr. Adam Wright, which with all transparency is a colleague and the co-founder of mine with the Anti-Fragile Academy. But more than that, Adam is a world leading expert in sort of all things, mental skills, mental performance, and to a certain extent, mental health. He currently serves as the director of mental performance for the Washington Nationals, but he has worked with sort of the cream of the crop across entertainment, professional and collegiate sports, business and finance, you name it. He comes from a tremendous academic pedigree with exercise physiology, sports psychology, clinical psychology, and a whole lot more, and just brings a really great perspective to all things flourishing. In this particular episode, we talked to Adam about anti-fragility, which we're excited about because we're launching a new spin-off series coming up on March 5th, uh, focused on that term. It's something that's come up time and time again in our episodes and our conversations with world-leading experts, so we wanted to double-click on it. So stay tuned for that in March 5th. But for now, our conversation with Adam Wright, John, what were some of the highlights for you? I loved learning more about what anti-fragility is and its connection with other related concepts like resilience, mental toughness, and grit. And Adam gave a really interesting description of why self-awareness and self-understanding are so important for it, which at first I was struggling to kind of grasp exactly what it is and asked him further about that. And then he teased that out further and and kind of gave an account of what we might call like the anti-fragile mindset about the main thing I took from this is how important it is when you're doing difficult things in life to approach that with an attitude of, I know this is going to be hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to look for ways to grow from it and so on. That's key to anti-fragility. So that was my main nugget from this. Yeah. Hope yeah. you guys enjoy it as well. Our episode with Dr. Adam Wright. And stay tuned for our special series on anti-fragility starting March 5th. All right. So Adam, let's dive in. At this point, our listeners will have heard me kind of go through your bio. Really impressive. You know, I want you to double click on some of these things that you are doing or have done throughout your career. But I thought we'd start with maybe the more interesting question, which you brought up in our kind of pre-meeting as well, which is like your big why, kind of why you got into this space of however you want to talk about it, human performance, human potential, anti-fragility, flourishing, thriving, right? How did all this get started for you? It's a good question. And I think particularly now in becoming a a psychoanalytic-oriented therapist in recent years, I'm always fascinated by people who manage to cultivate this perfect linear career trajectory, right? And it's so neatly wrapped up in a bow, right? And when you get people in a room, you start to peel back the layers and you see these layers of insulation that they create, you know, are largely just false. And you see the inner child filled with fears and doubts and periods of feeling lost throughout their career and angry maybe that they live someone else's dream and self-doubt. And so I'm always hesitant to offer that personal archaeology, but I think it's relevant because I could show you very clearly my career was not linear. And uh, I call myself a blue-collar academic, and that stems from then, like I grew up as an only child in a blue-collar neighborhood in Trenton, New Jersey in the 70s. And in many ways, I'd say my life was a study in contrast from the beginning. My parents were not formally educated. My father had left high school, went into the, in the Navy beginning at Vietnam. My mother was intelligent, never pursued higher education. So I was one of those kids like that like said, oh, the first you know, person to go to college. Well, I was the first person to finish high school in my father's family. And I think largely my parents were like, what the hell do we do with this kid? I think they were puzzled by a kid who was earmarked for these gifted and talented programs. We called them that back then. But I was also a rebel and I would intentionally fail out of these courses. You know, even back then I was resisting this predefined path. 
Like, and at the same time, I was like immensely drawn to these world of ideas, right? Contemplating deep topics, you know, questioning God at five and doing nerdy things like coin collecting and being deep in archaeology. And at the same time, I was fiercely competitive in sport and driven in that way too. So I think paradoxically, the way I like to look at it, um, maybe this resonates with some people listening to the show. It's like my life mirrored like a scene from Goodfellas much more than it ever like mirrored like the atmosphere of the Dead Poet Society, right? There was no deep intellectual engagement in my house. So I think in many ways, the point of this is like these juxtapositions of interests largely define me. But at the same time, there was an internal conflict that forced me to look outside of the box. And I think that resonates with me to this day. And I'll share this as an added, you know, I've struggled my whole life with OCD. John, you mentioned some things as well in terms of perfectionism. I was painfully shy, introverted, like weird little kid who would like go in the corner and just stick my head in the corner. And like my parents would just smack me in the head and stop doing that shit. They didn't know what to do with me, but I learned to turn it around. And I really did lean into my fears. And I think in, in so many ways and took action and did just the opposite. So ended up, you know, in high school, being captain of my baseball team, most popular in my class, prom king. Not that that means anything other than inside, I felt the furthest thing from that. But I did the opposite because it was values aligned. And I was doing that at a very young age. So bring me to college and career-wise, you know, I went to college to play baseball, quickly walked away because I felt overwhelmed, ill-prepared. But I was exposed to all these ideas. I was like a kid in a candy shop. And I settled on philosophy as an undergraduate. Um, I, it gave me the opportunity to think deeply about these ideas. Um, John, you could relate to this as a philosopher. So it was useful. But at the same time, I was like, what the hell am I going to do with this? I have no money. And it's like, okay, well, maybe I could look at psychology. But it was always the case, I'd much rather be a character like my philosophy professors than to study character like my psychology professors who I felt were stilted and just boring people that I wasn't that interested in. So I chose philosophy. I knew I would not go on with philosophy as a graduate student. At the same time, like I pledged a fraternity, which was idiotic, but I also cried a 4.0. So this constant juxtaposition, you know, upon graduation, I took a job in technology and moved to New York City. I hated corporate America <laughs> the whole time. I just wanted to, if I was going to reject it, I wanted to live it. I just didn't want to talk about it. I spent a couple of years there and then quit and said, screw this. I'm done. My parents thought I was crazy. And I took a job as a trainer at a gym and said, I'm going to go back to school. And started graduate school in applied physiology at Columbia. Got really interested in that. Eventually got bored with it because physiology to me was very easy. More interested in me why people weren't following my programs. That I, you know, these perfect programs, all they needed was to follow them and they resisted and they sabotaged themselves. And somehow I found a home in sports psychology. It kind of ticked all the boxes. It's like the technology, the methodologies, this interdisciplinary study understanding this complex relationship, what it was to be mind, body, performance, like really resonated with me. I didn't even know it existed. So I ended up doing a master's in it at Temple University and then quick stint in a doctoral program, clinical psychology. Again, didn't feel like I fit in, didn't like any of the people there. Went back to my home in sports psychology and, and finished my doctorate. And now later in life, went back to do my, finish my clinical training in mental health counseling. Long-winded. <laughs> No, it's perfect, Adam. That's and that's where I was hoping you would go on some level. And maybe all of us have talked about this at some point, but there's a great keynote or commencement speech at Stanford 2005 by Steve Jobs. Maybe both of you have seen it. Maybe some of our audience has seen it. I've shown it in a ton of talks. He basically talks about following intuition and kind of, you know, dots will connect retrospectively later in life if you follow your intuition, right? And as you're going through your story, which of course I've heard many times in different kind of capacities, 
all I could think about is, oh, you're collecting these dots throughout the course of a lifetime and professional career. And before we start talking like concepts and definitions and stuff like that, I think it's just worth rehashing these dots that really stand out to me, which is the philosophical side, the lived experience side, and that juxtaposition, the physiological background, right? The, I know you've moved away from it, but you had some clinical training, right? The performance side, the sports psych side, if you will, right? And now I'd say like in many ways, you're spending more and more time thinking about that psychoanalytic or what we might sometimes call a break fix or the air quotes here for our listeners, fix the bad side, right? Mm -hmm. And so something that stood out to me is you're always coming at these questions from, I think, really, really well-rounded, holistic perspectives. And I think you tap into that when you think about them. So that's a long setup to kind of ask, let's start with terms, flourishing, and then we'll obviously talk about anti-fragility a little bit. But what do you think it means for a human being to flourish or thrive? It's a good question. And obviously, you guys are the experts in this, right? So I take a backseat to you all. Let's think of Freud for a second in this, right? Because he's just been in my mind lately. I just did, happened to see the movie. There's a movie with Anthony Hopkins called The Last Session. If you have a chance, check it out. It's He plays Freud and he talks with Sis Lewis about the existence of God. So he's in my mind these days, but, you know, I think he would say something like it's purposeful love and work, right? And he had pretty low expectations for the human condition. You know, his whole goal analysis was basically to take everyday misery and create it to unhappiness. That was the highlight of the work he would do, right? So maybe it's why he snorted so much Coke to elevate his lived experience. (laughs) So, you know, I think from an academic perspective, though, if we look in today's world, um, it's a multidimensional term, obviously, right? So closely associated with this holistic state of well-being and fulfillment. And we know, like, all of these models, PERMA and Carol Riff and Broaden and Build and, you know, the Harvard model, I think there are common factors, right? Things like engagement, meaning purpose, achievement, positive relationships, some sense of virtue, um, principles, Maybe even some of these concepts of self-acceptance and environmental mastery, definitely autonomy, intrinsic motivation. You know, I think you kind of stir that up in a bowl, you have something that looks like flourishing. And I'm curious if I I could ask you guys this, because I'm curious too. It's like, okay, how is flourishing different than mental health, right? They're clearly parallel, but it's something else, right? Because, you know, mental health is not just the absence of mental disorders and disabilities, right? It's a complex interplay, emotional, psychological, social well-being. But if we add it all together, like how's flourishing different? Is it intensity? Like it's a foundation mental health, but is it the intensity of mental health? What do you guys think? I mean, my answer would be that good mental health, I would argue, would would be a necessary but not sufficient condition for flourishing. Mm -hmm. So you can have good mental health, but not be flourishing Mm -hmm. because other areas of your life could be pretty poor, but you don't have poor mental health. You know, they're not so poor as your poor mental health, but nonetheless, you don't maybe have a strong sense of meaning or purpose in your life. Your physical health isn't that good. But you're reasonably happy. Your mental health's pretty good, sound mind for sure. But you're not flourishing. Your life, you know, there's many ways in which you'd like your life to be better. That's how I would tease out the difference between them. What do you think, Nick? It's a good question. And I quickly kind of brought back up. I always go back to Corey Key's model here, yep. you know, mm-hmm. kind of mental mm-hmm. health languishing it's versus flourishing. It's it's an interesting argument. Yeah. For our listeners, that's Corey Key's K A. Y-E-S. Yeah, really, really awesome model to kind of help think about these questions. Yeah. It's called the dual continuum. Is that what his name is? The dual continuum yeah, model? Yeah, 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 yeah. I should clarify <laughs> something. <that. laughs> so I but, think like, you know, 
you take a term like mental health, I think that can be overly broad as well. So Mm -hmm. what my head goes to is, okay, well, what's the absence of mental health? Is it mental illness? What specific type of quote unquote illness are we talking about? If a person can navigate that illness in a way where they can still, let's say, accomplish or create or or actualize some of those ingredients for a flourishing Mm -hmm. life that you kind of listed off earlier, I'm not sure why the two can't coexist, right? But I think those are probably few and far between would be my hunch and what I understand of the research, right? So there's a little, I guess, a gap between, you know, how I conceptualize it and probably how it actually exists in the world. So would you say someone like John Nash was flourishing, even though he's suffering with schizophrenia? All I know of his story is the movie, right? So Mm -hmm. if you take the movie at face value and say that that is somewhat accurate, I have no idea whether it is or isn't. To me, there's an interesting question to be asked when he realizes he's dealing with what I think is Mm -hmm. schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. And he navigates it in a very different way. Now, is he flourishing? Well, to me, the word implies sort of like, I don't know, above and beyond baseline, some Mm -hmm. sort of element of potential. And I don't know that he's hitting that, but I think you can make the argument he was doing the best with what he got. And that Mm -hmm. might be another way to conceptualize it. Right. The idea of actualizing potential, whatever that potential is. Right. And it's also contextual and developmental. Yeah. 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 And I think we could build on that and to build on what I said a moment ago. A helpful definition here is, I think, actually the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard's definition, the, mm-hmm. the, relative, the relative attainment of a state in which all aspects of a person's life are good, including the context in which that person lives. Now, if someone's disposition and perhaps genetics are such that their baseline for certain aspects of mental health, like their negative affects, uh, their proneness towards depressive disorders is so strong that, you know, through a lot of work on themselves and with professional support they can Mm -hmm. reach a certain level relative to where they were but it's you know their general baseline though is different to others that don't have such a high propensity towards depressive disorders there you know i think it'd be fair to say that person's flourishing if let's say many important aspects of their life are good relative to kind of where they started off with you know from and, and relative to kind of how much they could improve certain aspects of their life given their proneness to depression let's say i wouldn't want to say there's like an objective level of mental health for all people that you've got to reach rather it's relative to the individual and so a person could have comparatively to some you know one person compared to another you know that the levels of mental health could be very different as it were but they could both be flourishing relative to their potential to improve their baseline in certain areas and this is where you That's come back to markers like subjective well-being as well, right? Yes. And all these self-report measures. And we don't need to get like too nerded out here, you know, for the audience. But yeah, there's a, certainly an element of subjectivity to all of this. You would call it qualia, right? There's something about the lived experience, you know, in, in this guy, and I think it's important. And there's a subjective nature to that. And I think what I see, particularly in my practice, and my point to this is, is that most people are overly critical of themselves and they lack self-compassion. And in many ways, I think they don't recognize that they're flourishing because they don't think they have it all together. All mm-hmm. aspects of their mental health is not there simultaneously. Emotional well-being, psychological well-being, social well-being, cognitive well-being, self-esteem, self-efficacy. It's like, it's okay. Do you You're find so- that to be a common thread? Not all, but many sort of what you might consider your highest performing, highest successful, you know, sort of clientele. Because I think in our conversations in the past, like 
okay, again, if we, if we take flourishing and we say there's some sort of performance aspect, like you're crushing it in life, you're hitting these maybe external markers, which may or may not be a part of the recipe, but to the outside observer, it looks like this person's kicking ass, but their lived experience to use your word is maybe not such a positive one. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest mistake I made in the start of my career is when I came out and a newly minted PhD and I go to work with these people, sometimes literally the best in what they do, the all-star, the goat in whatever they're doing. And you see that they're performing at the highest level of achievement, yet the rest of their life, they are the furthest thing from thriving. In many ways, they're often struggling and going to pieces effectively. And I think I was taken back by that because I just, and you know, that was my own ignorance. I just, you know, I made certain assumptions that were pretty naive. And they hit it quite well until you started to peel back these layers and you get to really see somebody for what their life really does look like. Yeah. So it was a great learning experience for me. You know, those that have it together, I think it's pretty clear, right? If you look at these markers, like what's really separating these people that are doing it right from maybe not necessarily doing it right in all aspects of their life that you consider flourishing and their experience of it is such. I think they're, I mean, I could rattle off a bunch of concepts here, but I think number one, I think they've done the work that's necessary to realize what their potential is. And that's a big one in terms of fulfilling it because they move beyond other people's expectations. They really figure out what the hell they want for their own life, their own desire, which is important. That's a sense of autonomy and agency. I do think they have the right mindset and the sense of mental resilience. And some of these terms get old and, and we, we know some of the problems around growth mindset and that research. But on a whole, I would say they use opportunities to learn and they're willing to take on what we would probably say is are insurmountable obstacles and challenges, right? There's something about persevering in these lines that like all these setbacks, right? I think they are immensely clear, you know, they have clarity in goals and purpose. Not to say it doesn't change and their, their motivation doesn't waver at times, they're human, but they're not just ambitious, they are super well-defined, I think, and that's really important. You know, and along with that, I think you have to have the capacity to handle stress and setbacks because it is not a linear path. And they have coping match, hopefully positive coping strategies, some not so positive, right, at times. What else do I see? I see they leverage their support systems exceptionally well. They're willing to take guidance and feedback from, from the circle, which is, you know, an emotional support too. I think these networks are crucial for them. They're always learning. They're always adapting. They're lifelong learners for the most part. I think they're learning from the failures, but also in terms of content knowledge too and expertise, there's an openness that goes along with this. Committed to physical health, committed to wellness, usually emotionally intelligent, depending on the field, some maybe not so. They're taking risks, they're accepting failures, immense focus, concentration for long periods of time. Yeah, I don't know. And all this is interacting in complex ways. It's just not simple, you know, based upon genetics and experiences and traumas and, you know, people are messy. These are some threads that I see that make up the tapestry of these people that I would say are, they have the shit together that are flourishing. Yeah. Can I ask the people you described, what age do they tend to be? Because the way you've described that set of attributes, it would be amazing if someone finished their education, right, with those attributes. But I mean, that would be a tall order to have not only identified what their skills are and their passions are, but to be really clear about them and where they want to go with. And I mean, you taught and you teach in various colleges and you work with early career and um, people who are sort of further in their career, athletes in other areas. So what age do the people you described tend to be that have those attributes? When I was going through this in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, you know, these are people that are well-established in the field. They're probably, you know, these are people on the latter half of their field where, where they've already made it. 
I think, you know, the younger ones are developing along that path, but these are people that are largely established and created, you know, a name for themselves, you know, and have been tested. They've been tested. They're, they're battle hardened, right? I would say they're not just librarians of the mind, but they're warriors of the mind and they have the scars to show for it. Hi friends, Nick here with just a brief interlude to share with you an update on one of our newest partnerships with the Anti-Fragile Academy. Throughout John and I's conversations with many, if not most of our guests, one thing has been made really clear. In order for people to flourish, thrive, experience the good life, they need to develop the capacity to not only navigate and endure, but ideally grow from the bad, grow from unpleasant experiences. That's why we're thrilled to be partnering with our newest sponsor, the Anti-Fragile Academy, an organization that I co-founded with Dr. Adam Wright, Director of Mental Performance for the Washington Nationals. At the Anti-Fragile Academy, we work with adolescent athletes, executives, and educators to help them understand some of the science, not just of optimal performance, but of well-being and anti-fragility. The ability not only to endure and bounce back from unpleasantness, but to actually come back stronger, to grow from it. Between Adam and I, we've worked with Fortune 100 companies, Inc. 300 executives, Division I programs, and elite professional athletes and Olympians from all over the world. To find out more about how you can leverage anti-fragility training, check out our website at theantifragileacademy.com. I think that battle hardened one, it's an obvious and organic opportunity to just kind of shift, you know, the conversation mm -hmm. and terminology a little bit talking about flourishing. That sounds like a certain thing, you know, we can kind of get into the, the details about what it is or isn't, but I think something that all three of us have been thinking about more and more, John and I, cause it's come up, you know, probably at least half the episodes, right. You and I through some of our work together is like kind of prerequisites or things that are great to have as like foundations that enhance your potential to flourish consistently. Right. And one mm -hmm. of those things mm -hmm. is this term anti-fragility. So let's just like shift it in that direction a little bit. Everything you describe or you've described to me in the past, it often sounds like these people who look like they're flourishing or crushing or have themselves put together, have this sort of capacity. Yeah. They're optimistic. They take chances, yada, yada, yada. But they have this hardiness, this battle testedness, right, that has come from experience and navigating adversity. Talk a little bit about what you see in the people you work with and why that interested you in a term like anti-fragility. Should we define anti-fragility first, just so yeah, we're yeah. on sure. the same page here operationally? And as academics, we get overly caught up in these operational definitions. So let's not be crazy with it, but it's important that we're all talking on the same yeah, page. Yeah, how right? you think about it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and by the way, just my interest in anti-fragility stemmed from my interest in post-traumatic growth. I don't, you know, so for the audience, but it was studied by Tedeschi and, and Calhoun back in the 90s. And they, they said, okay, these people have trauma. Some end up in post-traumatic stress, right? And dysfunctional, but some actually end up better off. You see improved relationships, increased personal strength, a great appreciation of life. I mean, like spirituality and seeing more possibilities is like, well, what the hell is going on there? What are these underlying processes that allow for this to happen? And they've identified some interesting ones in terms of cognitive processing and emotional regulation, most importantly, sports systems, right? And some personality traits that are associated with this. So anyway, my original interest started with that, right? It's like post-traumatic, it's like, okay, but do we need trauma 
to engage in some of these processes, like trauma with a big T. And in sports psychology, and what I knew about, like just basically training in general and theories of supercompensation, where you know we grow when we train, you break our muscles down, and we create little microscopic tears and trauma, and we stop training and we get stronger. It's like, well, that's an interesting concept. This is inherent. This is emergent property of being human, right? This is in us. It's like, oh, that's an interesting concept, right? So I was playing with these ideas, and all of a sudden, in I think 2012, Nassim Tlaib, the trader and a scholar and SES came up with this idea of anti-fragility. I was like, holy shit, this is it, right? And he talked about it. I was just like, man, this is, he's just like singing to the choir. This idea that there's certain systems that thrive rather than merely survive in the case of disorder, in terms of chaos, right? Or random events and stress. So the idea is like, we're going beyond resilience or robustness and bouncing back. And you're just getting better as shit gets harder, right? And when he described it, it was like so eloquently, it's like, it's the property behind everything that changes with time, right? Evolution, culture, revolutions, bacteria. <laughs> like you could go the rise and fall of city. Like you can see this culture, economic success. Man, this is something that's just an amazing concept. And it's also like he proved this mathematically. It's not just a philosophical concept. So when I heard this, I was like, this is when the light came on. It's like, okay, this is something we've got to pursue. And, and there's not a lot of academic literature out there about it. You know, it's a new concept. Love to do some research on it at some point, but just you know, thinking this through more and more and trying to understand what does this really look like in these people that are thriving because they have access to this. And you know, I'd be happy to go through some of my thoughts on this process. I'm just thinking this through, but yeah, yeah. Won't... well, any, any I mean, com- yeah. comments? Yeah, well, that's great. Well, can you just tease out a little more the relation, perhaps it's analogical between supercompensation and anti fragility? Is the idea that just like when a muscle tears in that microscopic way, it gets stronger over time, so it rebuilds when someone's not training. It's the idea that with certain experiences in life, after you've had them and you're processing them, maybe unconsciously sometimes, perhaps mm-hmm. even when you're sleeping, I don't know, the brain continue to work, and even build yeah. synaptic connections and consolidate mm-hmm. the synaptic connections and synaptic pathways, you are becoming more anti-fragile over time in an analogous way. Yeah, yeah, and this, this idea of cognitive restructuring and... You have these pre-existing beliefs and assumptions that are challenged, and then they're reevaluated in light of this experience. And all of a sudden, you come up new, you know, and you're building yourself back and getting stronger each time. And I think based upon that, I think the idea is like, all right, well, how do we create an internal and external milieu for this to happen, right? Intentionally. Mm-hmm. Okay. And follow-up question, and this is probably novice question about anti-fragility because I'm aware I'm talking to experts about it. Connections or differences between related character strengths, resilience, grit, mental toughness in particular. Yeah. So can I just show, can I paint a recipe for this, how I think about this really quickly? So here's how I look at it, right? It starts with knowing yourself. What are your personal characteristics, right? Maybe we think in terms of big five personality characteristics. And we know too that like personality is not as stable as we thought, right? We could create state change that leads to trait change. But given that there's an element of stability there, okay? So we have to know ourselves. And then we have to build psychological skills, right? And what I mean by that is like, what do we need to improve our functioning day to day, right? And these skills are more malleable than personality characteristics. So from a sports psychology perspective, I would say self-awareness positive self-talk, visualizing skills, attentional control skills, relaxation, emotional control skills, goal setting, preparation, routines, all these things. So if we consider this as like the foundation of the house that we're building and the psychological skills actually provide the bricks to build the house, 
What I would say is the personal outcomes that we're looking for is the actual structure that we're looking to build, right? So what does that mean? It means we want people that are, what I see is they're optimally motivated, they're self-determined, they're intrinsically motivated. They have an ability to have strong executive function and cognitive skills. They can maintain their attention for long periods of time on what matters. They can handle pressure, deal with distress. They could recognize the support around them and ask for it, whether it's perceived or real. They can manage relationships in an effective way. They have emotional intelligence. They have political acuity. They know how to work the environment. Like These are the outcomes we're looking for. Once you build that house and it's firm, then we say, okay, let's engage the world with anti-fragile behaviors. Seek more exposure risk. Increase intolerance by taking more chances. Be willing to make mistakes of a certain kind of magnitude that's not going to sink the ship, but can actually give you data to increase and grow. Diversify your resources, cognitive, physical, emotional, all these things that like collaboration, information gathering, feedback seeking, addition through subtraction, we talk about, Nick, you know, this idea of via activity, get rid of the bad, right? Get rid of the bad, surround yourself with the good, social contagion, building in redundancy. These are all anti-fragile behaviors that Nassim Talib talks about in systems. Same thing. We could do that with our mental and physical health, with habits and routines. Does the picture make sense how this all kind of feeds into a process? And Yeah. Know yourself, right? Know skills and strategies, right? And then use that knowledge of self and skills and strategies to go out and take on hard things, unpleasant things, uncomfortable things to grow oneself. Exactly. The skills and strategies allow to certain personal outcomes and abilities, right? That can be, right? That can be obtained. We have the potential, right? But then what do we do is go out and we test it. We talk a lot in sports psychology about choking. What does choking mean? It's not like you eat your sport. What does it actually mean, choking? Choking means that you choke off your ability to, to, to leverage your skills and your assets under pressure, right? And this is what we want to do. If we have all these elements in place, the idea is that we can go out and we can have access in pressurized situations to our best skills that we've honed over time. In other words, here's our genetic potential. Here's our skills that we've honed. And they come together like a Venn diagram under pressure. Pressure can pull us apart or it could push us together. And I feel like if we work to put these things in a mode that we can train with certain, obviously certain constraints given genetic capacities, that everybody has the ability to do this. I mean, this is not something for the chosen few. And I think to a large extent that the people I see that are really killing it and flourishing are doing this. They wouldn't have this language for it. They don't even know they're doing it in many ways, but they're doing it. They embody Mm -hmm. it in a very real way. Okay. So just let me continue just to tease these out a bit for our audience, but also for myself. So I take it you've got to be resilient and mentally tough to also be anti-fragile. And probably the converse is true. You've got to be anti-fragile to be resilient and be mentally tough. I don't think you have to be gritty to be anti-fragile, resilient, or mentally tough. But I do think you need to maybe have all those three to be gritty, right? I think it doesn't work both ways, right? The self-awareness piece is particularly interesting. I don't know if you maybe need to have the kind of level of self-awareness and self-knowledge you're describing there to be resilient, depending on which form of resilience we're talking about, or mentally tough. So can we just dig in on that a bit further? Why is self-understanding and self-awareness so important for anti-fragility? The reason I ask this is, right, I'm imagining the resilient person is just someone who's built up a really strong sense of character that they can recover and bounce back from adversities in their life pretty well. They don't really understand why exactly. They haven't got a deep sense of understanding how they're able to do this. They just do it. And other people point it out to them like, wow, you're really resilient. That's really impressive in some domain of their life. I can imagine the same being the case of the anti-fragile person in, in slightly different ways. So can we just emphasize that? Why is self-understanding, self-awareness so important for anti-fragility? 
I probably align myself with Socrates when I think about this in, in the sense that I don't think it's capacity. It's not possible to live a life of meaning and to flourish without some sense of self-awareness and self-reflection, deep self-reflection. I do think you could be resilient and that's part of the equation, but it's simply not enough. And ultimately, if you look at even from a physiological perspective, if you were only resilient under stress in time, the system will break. All organic systems will break down. If you don't allow some recovery, right, you will never grow. And I think you have to have enough self-awareness to step back over time and allow yourself to recover and to have some space. And yeah, I don't know if that happens without being able to look under hood and have some awareness. And, and by the way, that issue of grit is an interesting one because I always say it's like that aligns really well with high conscientiousness and high conscientiousness aligns well with self-awareness. If we can double click on awareness for a second, I think this is something to me has always distinguished a term like anti-fragility, but also distinguished, I think, Adam, the way you not only think about it, but the way you often practice with people you work with. Awareness of unpleasantness, let's say, right, is sort of a precondition for developing and practicing anti-fragility. Like we are thoughtfully and intentionally taking things on that are going to create some level of unpleasantness or discomfort, right? And when you hear a term like anti-fragile, it might sound like you take those things on and you experience no discomfort. You are mentally tough. But that ain't what you're talking about, right? And in your practice, you're typically never talking about eliminating or reframing or kind of putting positive spins on things. You're talking about being awareness of that discomfort and then accepting it so that you can take other actions. And I wonder if you'd just go down that road for us a little bit, because I think it's a really, really important nuance. This reminds me of some of humans' concepts around, you know, is the neuroscience concepts, right? With the mid-anterior, what's the name of that term? The mid-anterior cingulate cortex? But the idea with this is I would look at that as almost a willpower part of the brain. And what he's shown in some of this research is that it doesn't grow unless you know you're doing something that you do not like. <laughs> if you like it and you enjoy it, it doesn't grow, which is interesting. And I think this is something from a neuropsychological perspective is important, but even from a lived experience is important. The whole point of this is that it's a proactive searching for things that make us uncomfortable, right? We're identifying what makes us feel bad, weak, doubtful, and we're leaning into them. If you look at some of these cognitive behavioral theories, like third wave behavioral theories, like acceptance commitment theory, what you see and why they're so effective is you are never getting rid of the bad, right? You're not trying to refute all your negative thoughts and feelings. You're aware of them. You label them. You accept that they're there. And then you move forward with value-based action that's aligned with who you want to be, even though you feel like shit. So the idea is that you could form really, really well and feel really, really bad. And that's okay because that's part of the human condition. The problem is, is when you avoid the feeling, when you try to dissociate from it, when you don't recognize it. I think this is probably why self-awareness, right? And some element self-reflection is so important because then we're basically like a leaf in the wind, right? These unconscious drivers are always there. If we don't bring them to the forefront, there will be a level of repetition compulsion where we just go and do the same thing. We're busy, but it's it's avoiding and we're not moving forward. You can't sit still. You're either moving towards your goals or you're moving away. And it's a very, very easy way to go back and relive like ineffective ways of engaging with the world because you really don't want to deal what's under what's under the hood, right? It's just so damn uncomfortable. We're saying just the opposite. 
I think anti-fragility does. Yeah. Really quick before John takes us to our flourishing question, we start to wrap. I think that that's kind of a nice full circle moment with your kind of personal and professional history as well. I just kind of want to like, you know, name that uh, circularity, if you will. Okay, Adam. Yeah, thank you for that really helpful explanation of the role of self-awareness and self-understanding and anti-fragility. Makes me think that there's something like a kind of anti-fragile mindset with which we have to approach experiences in order to actually you know build ourselves from them in terms of seeing these as something you know things that we know are going to be difficult but nonetheless we go into them looking for ways to improve that's another topic for a whole other conversation on anti-fragility that i hope we can you know have and, another and time I, one point to yeah, this go is, for it, is this concept we didn't bring up this concept of interoception and i think it's really understanding what our lived experience is and feeling it fully and i think that takes a multi-dimensional lens right it's a physical it's having a mental approach, it's having a psychological approach. But the most challenging in all this, and this is probably why I went back to study psychoanalytic work, which as a behavioral scientist, I always thought it was nonsense. Like it's like Freud was dead, he's been dead for hundred years. Like what, do, like we go so far beyond this, but like there is something about looking at emotions and funny enough, people like Sapolsky and you know, these evolutionary biologists are telling us like, are largely driven by unconscious forces. <laughs> 95% of what we do, we like to, we use our brain to basically put a linear narrative around this. So it all makes sense. But the truth is, is like, it's all predetermined. They could argue that there is no free will at all. It's like, well, this is interesting stuff when it comes to emotions and really understanding what is driving us. And it takes a lot of time and a lot of reflection, and a lot of work to really understand that. And to, to, if we even can do that, get to the bottom of it, because with that information, we can make better choices. And we can move forward with the confidence that we can take on whatever is going to come. And inevitably, we will face storms. But if we know we have no choice, like, I have to go this way, burn the boats, this is what's driving me, and I know why now, then it gives us, I think, a little bit more motivation, a little more conscientious, a little more grit to move forward, right? With the idea that we know, it's like, this is how we're going to get stronger. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It makes sense. So so what's the starting point, Adam? And we want to be conscious of and sensitive to time here. So 60 seconds, our flourishing question, or you can reframe it to anti-fragility question, right. but like somebody's got to get started. You think there's an initial step or a most critical first step. Maybe it's self-awareness, how we increase self-awareness. You might go a different direction. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is most fundamental for people to get started with? So I'll give you my shtick. All right. So here's what I say, right? If we continue to deny ourselves, right, or intentionally avoid exposure, right, to any kind of destabilizing event, and I'm not just talking like uncomfortable ideas or potentially embarrassing scenarios. I'm talking about like real experiences that largely shape our fundamental concept of self. We will inevitably find ourselves ill-equipped to deal with any challenges that real challenges that life throw at us, right? So the idea that we can choose to expose ourselves to experiences that in time, right? In dealing with them, we'll create more psychological insulation. I love that term. To deal with whatever comes our way is something to me worth engaging in. So how do we do that? One practical way, right? One practical way, right? And I'm going to take this from Glasser's theory, but like reality therapy. We live in the world of hacks. Everybody wants a hack, right? Let's do cold, like, yes, there's a place for this. We can, you know, this goggins, it becomes a verb, right? This idea of doing this crazy shit. I, I get it, right? And challenging ourselves. That's fine. The whole stoic concept is, is beautiful. But I think the most challenging thing, the most frightening thing, right? It, the scariest thing is deep self-reflection, right? Looking under the hood is possibly the most difficult thing to do for any of us, right? 
So if that's the case, like, so what am I going to challenge you with? I'm going to invite you to think about a couple of things, right? Question yourself. How are things right now for you? How are things going in a very real way, right? What would you be doing if you were living a life more fully? What would that look like? You know, project this life out one year from now, right? Do a future self, write this stuff down with every possible detail, right? Imagine that it's achieved, right? I want you to be able to live it. I want you to be able to feel like, what does that feel like? It's great. And then when you come back to the present moment, ask yourself very clearly, right? What are you doing at this time that's getting in the way of you achieving this, right? What feelings, what thoughts, what actions are moving you away? And then find one of them, just one of them to work on and lean into and to change. And that will start to snowball. Awesome. That's a great answer to that question, man. Love that. All right. Thank you, Adam Wright, Dr. Adam Wright. Been a great conversation. Where can people find you online, Adam? Up until recently, nowhere, but I'm happy to say I do exist now. <laughs> DrAdamWright.com and our work together, Nick, at TheAntiFragileAcademy.com. Adam, thanks for making the time. Really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us and uh, your thoughts on both flourishing and anti-fragility. I enjoyed the conversation, guys. I'm happy to finally do this. It's been a long time coming. Thanks so much, man. Thanks so much for listening to Flourish FM. We hope you enjoyed the content. Please be sure to leave us a five-star review and hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast and on all major social media platforms. And if you visit our website, flourishfmpodcast.com, you can sign up to our newsletter. We send out a weekly newsletter. First newsletter of every month, we share a long-form blog. And every newsletter, every week, we share highlights from our previous episodes. Please hit subscribe on our website. 